Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for April 22, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today is Canadian author and culture writer Stephen Marsh. He writes for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, and Esquire, among other outlets. His latest book, which we'll be discussing in this interview, is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, published by Avid Reader Press, a division of Simon & Schuster. He writes, quote, There will be those who say that the possibility of a new civil war is alarmist. All I can say is that reality has outpaced even the most alarmist predictions. And further, quote, The intelligence services of other countries are preparing dossiers on the possibility of America's collapse. Foreign governments need to prepare for a post-democratic America, an authoritarian and hence much less stable superpower. They need to prepare for a broken America, one with many different centers of power. They need to prepare for a lost America, one so consumed by its crises that it cannot manage to conceive, much less enact, domestic or foreign policies. The purpose of this book is to give readers access to the same advanced information. These dispatches are projections, but not fantasies. The next civil war isn't science fiction anymore. The plans to the first battles have already been drawn up, and not by novelists, by colonels. End of the quotes. We spoke to Stephen Marsh on April 19, 2022. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Stephen Marsh. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Stephen, you describe your book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, as speculative nonfiction. What do you mean by that? The book contains certain fictional elements, like I imagine various scenarios of what a next civil war might look like in the United States, but it's very much drawn from fact. It's very much drawn from hundreds of interviews, like almost 200 interviews, and sort of the best available models of what catastrophe could look like. So it's a fusion of imagined realities, but drawn very much from the news and what, what's going on it, to sort of get at how much danger America's in. And you note, as a Canadian, you are perhaps in a better position to assess the current and evolving situation in the United States. What makes you think that? Well, I think Canadians are always sort of obsessed with the United States and follow America quite closely because so much of our country relies on the United States for trade and for culture and so on. So very familiar with the United States. I've lived in America. I've worked in America. I've made most of my living in America for most of my life. You know, I have family in the United States, and yet I'm not an American. So while I'm very familiar with what, what America is like, I also, it does, it's not normal to me. Right. In fact, increasingly, it's very strange to me. I think Canadians can somehow have a bit of a sort of a perfect vantage point on the United States. We're like close, but not quite in it. And I actually think that's why there are a lot of people who commentators from Canada, like Malcolm Gladwell and so on, who, who just have that little bit of distance. We don't, we're not like Europeans where we have contempt for the United States. Like this is not a book written out of contempt at all. It's written very much out of love for the United States. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> I was pleased to see that you mentioned Richard Kreitner and his very informative book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. As these things sometimes happen, we interviewed Richard Kreitner on the morning of January 6, 2021. And as these things seem to happen, the last known Confederate widow had just died at the age of 101, three weeks to the day before that interview, which ended at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, as I said, on January 6, 2021. Within minutes, 
pro-Trump insurgents paraded their Confederate battle flag in the halls of the Capitol, which even the Confederate Army had not been able to do, as the Congress of the United States, their staff and the press fled in fear for their lives, and an utterly overwhelmed Capitol Police force attempted to protect them. Meanwhile, Donald J. Trump is reported to have been gleefully watching the debacle on TV, as were large numbers of Americans, although many not so gleefully. America is such a young country. We can trace our entire history in just four overlapping lives. For example, Thomas Jefferson was born into a slaveholding family in 1743. Sojourner Truth was born into slavery in New York in 1797. She was 19 years old when Jefferson died on July 4, 1826. She died at the age of 86 in 1883. Jeanette Rankin was the first woman elected to the U.S. Congress uh, from the state of Montana in 1916. Rankin was born in 1880, three years before Sojourner Truth died, and she lived till 1973. I and many of our listeners were born during her lifetime. So, from the founding of this nation in 1776, during the lifetime of Thomas Jefferson, we can trace through four great Americans— four overlapping lifetimes. America really is such a young country. And even though we experienced a shockingly bloody civil war only 74 years after the signing of the U.S. Constitution, many Americans consider our present-day 50 United States to be immune to a thing like a civil war. It seems unimaginable. Now, Stephen, you write about the desire not to see what's happening. And you write, and I'm quoting you, on the eve of America's first civil war, the most intelligent, the most informed, the most dedicated people in the country could not foresee its arrival. End of that quote. Would you expand on that, please? Well, at the time, there was just a real lack of believing that it was going to happen. I mean, even Jefferson Davis thought that there would not be a civil war, that there would be a secession, and that would be it. I mean, the the Union found itself so unprepared for a civil war that they had to go to Europe to get weapons, right, which is an extraordinary thing to think about at this moment in our history where, you know, America is so unarmed that it has to go to Europe to buy rifles. There was this general sense of, like, it's not going to come to this because because the reality is so horrible. And the first civil war led to, you know, the death of almost 3% of the American population, 600,000 people died. In some states like South Carolina, you know, it was 25% of the male population died. It was a huge catastrophe. So nobody wants to see that coming. And at the same time, if you go back in history, it's very easy in hindsight to see the inevitability of a civil war, to see, you know, the nullification crisis and Charles Sumner beating Senator Durr severely on the floor of the Senate. And, you know, all of these violent acts that sort of precipitated that led up to the civil war. I think we're in a very similar situation right now where no one really believes it's coming. Nobody wants to see it coming. And yet the trends are very clear and point in one one direction, and that direction is to rises in political violence and the increasing delegitimization of, the, of government in, in itself. So to me, they are kind of parallel situations, the situation that they were in just before the first civil war and the situation we find ourselves in now. You say that unimaginable is not the same thing as unpredictable. No one wants to imagine what these horrors are like, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to happen. Like what's happening in Ukraine right now is unimaginable, but it was far from unpredictable. And political violence tends to be that way. Let's get to how you define or how the bodies in the world define a civil war versus, let's say, civil strife. The definitions that I worked with, so I wanted to stay really close to the facts, and I wanted to stay really close to established models and established systems, because obviously the situation in the United States as it is now is so toxic and so 
so hyperpartisan that it, it's hard to get some kind of distance on from this material. So Prio's definition, which is the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, their definition of civil strife starts at 25 combatant deaths a year. So that would mean that America already is in a state of civil strife. And civil war starts at 1,000 combatant deaths a year. Although I would say in the case of America, which is so heterogeneous and so large and has so many people, I'm not sure how much those numbers matter. I think the larger point is that we're seeing declines in state legitimacy and legitimacy of government, and we're seeing rises in political violence and the tolerance for political violence. And the question is, when the forces of chaos become greater than the forces of order, that's when we'll be in a state of civil war. I do want to share with our listeners some of the numbers that you give in your book, The Next Civil War, Stephen Marsh. The Peace Research Institute in Oslo defines civil strife as more than 25 combat deaths per year. In the United States, now this is just killed by anti-government extremists. In 2019, it was 42. In 2018, 53. In 2017, 37. In 2016, 72. In 2015, 70. We've reported on other programs about the rise of anti-government militias and that sort of thing in the United States. Uh, So we won't go into that history right now. But as you said, uh, by some standards, the U.S. is already in a state of civil strife. Are you saying that we're going to have something like the Civil War of the 1860s again? Is Is that how we're envisioning things? No, no. I mean, it won't be uh, symmetrical warfare with sides and organized by different states. Like, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about insurgency and asymmetrical warfare, and in particular, counterinsurgency and insurgency. It won't be a divided civil war. Like, it won't be between two sides. It will be between somebody who claims to be the U.S. government and then a lot of different groups who claim to be against the U.S. government. So much closer to something like Syria or Iraq than to the 19th century version of the, of the Civil War. So, again, the problem is really the forces between chaos and order. You know, I should also point out that those number of combatant deaths are almost certainly severely underreported. They're not government stats. Those are done by researchers. So, you know, there really is no, like, even the FBI does not really keep records of, like, who it considers a political combatant. That's determined by researchers. And they're they're going off newspaper reports. And they're just individual people. They don't have the systematic capacities of the Department of Justice. So almost certainly those numbers are quite severely smaller. They're not reflective of the, the size of the problem, really. Going off what you just said of that scenario where one faction claims to be the legitimate government and another does not, it does sort of resonate with the situation we found ourselves in after the 2020 election, where there are some who still maintain that Donald Trump is the legitimate president of the United States and Joe Biden is the illegitimate president. So far, This hasn't organized itself into a civil war, but I I wonder if you have any comments on that situation. Well, it's not some people. It's 53 percent of Republicans currently. So you've got a majority of one party who feels that the current president is illegitimate. So that's already I mean, that's already a crisis. Uh, I mean, in any other country in the world, that would be that that's what that is. That's a political crisis. So you're at a point now where only about 20 percent of Americans feel their political system reflects the country, the will of the people. So that and then you've got 33 percent of people who believe that violence is an acceptable alternative. That's on both left and right. That's not that's not necessarily on either side. So you have a legitimacy crisis and you're going to be in a situation, whether it's 2024 or 2028. Or it could even be as little as 2032, but I don't think it's going to take that long, where a Republican is elected with not even close to the majority support. So like maybe losing by 10 million votes and still winning the presidency. And then you really have to ask yourself if you are living in a democracy. By 2040, 50% of the country will control 85% of the Senate. The, the technical term for that is anocracy. So it's in between autocracy and democracy. And that's very, very dangerous. I mean, that's, that's where, that's what civil wars come from. Those are the countries that are most at risk of civil war. Democracies are stable. Autocracies are stable. But countries where you're sort of in between, that's where political violence tends to really blossom. 
and you're headed there. Like, I, I mean, you're, you're almost there now, but you're, you're, you're actually, you're significantly there now, but it's going to get much, much worse. And it's, and it's going to be on both sides. Right. I mean, you're already in a place where over half of Republicans don't believe the current president was legitimately elected. And I, I think you're going to be in a, in, a, in a place where in the near future where people, Democrats feel exactly the same way about a Republican president. And then what is the political basis of authority when you don't have legitimacy? It's very hard to know. And the, the results tend to be violence. It seems that anti-democracy forces have been using the mechanisms of democracy to destroy democracy. One can trace it back to the 50s, uh, the 80s, but certainly it has seemed to been accelerated uh, after the crash of 2008. We see with the rise of the Tea Party, etc. Are those some of the things you're referring to there? I think 2008 is a big year for sure. I mean, every expert that I talk to, like when you go and talk to the about the militia movements, or you begin to talk about the rise of secession as a as a mainstream political force, they all bring up 2008. It's the housing crisis. It's also the failure of the surge in Iraq. It's also the election of a black president. It's a series of it's a series of things that happen at once that cause a kind of crisis in democracy. But I think also the, the basic non-functioning of American democracy is becoming more and more apparent. Hyperpartisanship tends to lead to this. Even under Biden, where he controls everything, supposedly, he controls all three. It took 11 months to get the ambassador to Canada named, right? Like, the basic government functions, not reneging on your debt, appointing people to the Department of State, you're no longer capable of appointing justices to the Supreme Court without everybody calling everybody else a pedophile, right? So I think one of the things that's happening in American politics is that people are seeing that their politics no longer has the possibility to make change. And it it no longer has the possibility to enact policy. And when that happens, violence is is kind of a logical outcome. 2008 is definitely the beginning of it. But the the crisis in democracy is not just the rise of the anti-democratic function. It's also the fact that American democracy obviously is non-functional. It's not capable of doing things even when huge majorities of people agree with them. So the crisis is at least two ways. It goes into the ineffectiveness of the federal authority, but it also goes to these explicit anti-democratic people. It's small d. Yeah, small d, who are now in, in significant positions of power. Stephen Marsh, in your book, The Next Civil War Dispatches from the American Future, you offer these dispatches, and there are kind of scenarios that you consider, and you you interview military people and that sort of thing about these. Let's start with the first one that you call the Battle of the Bridge. What would you like our listeners to know about that? It was based on conversations I had with a colonel who was responsible for drawing up full-spectrum operation in the homeland. So what happens when an anti-government patriot essentially takes over a government and holds a particular county hostage? How would the U.S. military react, which is essentially a legal and bureaucratic nightmare? It's not, it's not really a military problem because the U.S. Marines, they're much, much better than any militia anywhere in the world. But um, And they have, of course, Apache helicopters, and they have tube-guided missiles and they have they have a full array of things that even though these militias are quite well armed they can't possibly compete with on the other hand you know putting down a resistance movement by force never really ends well right it's not it's like you can win every battle as the united states did in afghanistan and still lose the war and that really is the bind that the use of military force to put down civil unrest would produce People talk about calling the National Guard. I mean, to me, and and they did when there was the threat of a trucker convoy in Washington. But really, it's dangerous. Like, it should be used only as an absolute last resort. Well, that brings up the trucker convoy up in Canada. Do you see that as a symptom of potential civil war in your own country? Not really. I mean, for one thing, what, what I really saw it over was a spillover of... America's toxic politics onto our shore. I mean, it was mostly funded by Americans. Like the vast majority of the money raised was from the United States. Less than, I think it was less than 25% in the end of funding came from Canadian sources. It was a very small group of people, about 500 people in the end, really, who were holding Ottawa hostage for all those days. And 
Also, there were certain specific elements of Canadian pathology uh, about it, like we would not use tear gas on people, which, of course, when, when the truckers came to France, they just shot tear gas at them and it was over in five minutes. There's also like we have a, a, a great more like almost 90, I think it's 96% of the country of adults are, are vaccinated at this point or double vaccinated. So we have a much higher degree of trust in social institutions. We and we have a functional politics. Like if you want to get into politics and change the country, you absolutely can. I mean, it's boring and very few people do it, but it's not like the United States where enacting change is nearly impossible. So I actually think it's more of a of a symptom of what life is going to be like living next to a country in breakdown, right? And it, and there are going to be spillovers. We saw that in 2016 when our borders were overrun by refugees crossing illegally into Canada, and there were all these deaths on the border, and that was a real that was a real crisis for us too. This is just it was just sort of the the, the one after January 6th for us. In 2016, was that because of Trump's election? What what prompted that? Yeah, it was Trump's election, and then there was an immediate clampdown by the Border Patrol and by ICE. They suddenly got much stricter and were starting to round people up, and so people fled to Canada. Oh, I see. So this wasn't Americans becoming expats. No, no, no. I mean, there were there certainly there are expats in my neighborhood right now, and there are people. I, I mean, I definitely feel there are people who have who I've met who've moved from America because they find its politics too toxic, and that's happening. Certainly among software like engineers especially where you know they can they're highly mobile and they can they can be anywhere like they are coming here quite regularly but no in 2016 it was refugees back to the battle of the bridge you brought up that it was a very small minority in the truck caravan but the concept of a small minority making huge repercussions the three percenters work on that model, and you particularly focus on the Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officers Association and the whole sovereign citizen movement. Would you talk about that, please? They're sort of separate groups, but they're, they're broadly under the category of anti-government patriots. So sovereign citizens, are, I guess, are kind of the most extreme group because they don't really believe in the authority of the federal government. They believe that the 14th Amendment is illegitimate, and so that gives them essentially a right to be a law unto themselves and to not pay taxes, for one thing, and also not to stop for police. And often they kill police. A lot of those combatant deaths we talked about earlier are, in fact, sovereign citizens who murder police. And then you have the constitutional sheriffs who believe that their role is to resist federal authority. And they believe that they've been constitutionally granted that role and that, therefore, it is their job to be anti-government. And the amazing thing that you see is where you see figures of authority who become anti-government and figures in government who become anti-government. And this is the contradiction that increasingly is driving a lot of American politics when you see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and so on who are believe that Congress is a bunch of child-raping fascist, but has somehow become a member of it herself. That is a real contradiction. The sovereign citizens scare me because they're so large. There's at least 600,000 of them in the United States, which is a, a significant number by, by any measure. And the constitutional sheriffs, you know, there's 5,000 of them. That's a 5,000 member group. So that's, and they, they have real power. They are, they are all across the United States. So yeah, the, the, the hard right in the United States is very hard to get a grasp on. I describe it as a buffet of sensibilities in the book. It's not a coherent political ideology. It's more a, a series of angry philosophies that they borrow from, and often they switch between them. So you have people who are Second Amendment absolutists who become tax avoidance people, and then that fuses with white supremacists who are actually a hugely heterogeneous group. So there's like fascists, and there's Nazis, and there's white identitarians, and there's white nationalists, and there's white Christians, and they're all different, and they all have different organizations. And then there's the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters who are separate groups in themselves and have different political aims. So it's, it's quite chaotic. But on the other hand, somehow they are organized. They feel themselves to be part of a unified movement. I liked your quote, don't mistake intellectual incoherence with weakness. They like to be esoteric. Like, that's one thing it took me a long time to figure out. It's like they, they will deliberately not believe anything that comes from a source of authority. That's the pleasure for them. 
that obviously leads to quite a bit of chaos. But on the other hand, it, cre- it creates a great deal of sympathy among each other for their different kind of forms of resistance, if you will. What about accelerationists? I mean, these are people that not only believe that a civil war is coming, but that they should do what they can to speed it up. They're one of the more active terrorist groups. Like they're the they're the people the Department of Justice are searching for because they they think that any violence is good violence because they want the end of the United States. And a huge majority of them see that as the prelude to the forming of a white ethno-nationalist state. They're one group among many, but it's actually hard to tell how large they are. They could be very small. They could be very large, but it's, it's, it's really hard to know. They've been found with nuclear, with nuclear materials, accelerationists. Like they've been, several of them have been found with americium and other components that could be used to make dirty bombs. So they're, I mean, they're, they're quite, quite scary. Yeah, there, there was talk of the potential for a drone loaded with a dirty bomb over the U.S. Capitol and crashing in. And not that it would do a lot of damage, but it's a case of the image of it. Talk about that, the perception and, and who controls the perception of things. When we're talking about insurgencies and we're talking about terrorism and small groups changing it, like it's the violence is less important than the symbolism of the violence. America is very vulnerable to that kind of symbolism. Like September 11th was a horrific tragedy, but its impact as a symbolic event was, of course, much larger than its impact strictly as an act of war. Right. So and and these people, the terror. Well, I mean, I think you see this saw this on January 6th where they came in and they just vandalized the seat of power. And it was not really that they caused a lot of physical damage. It's that the symbolism was no one in government is safe ever. And they fully, uh, fully achieved that kind of symbolic reckoning. So symbolism really matters here. And it certainly matters in other civil strife contexts. Like it certainly matters in places like Syria and so on. You know, you could see it in Ukraine where it matters enormously, probably more than the, the physical battlefield. And America would certainly be vulnerable to that, to a kind of attack. I mean, that's the attack I imagine in the fourth dispatch, like what, what, what a dirty bomb in, on the U.S. Capitol would look like. And, I, you know, I think it would render the, the whole notion of government toxic for a generation. Yeah, and as I began this, a generation is longer than most people think. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You write, Stephen Marsh, that, and I'm quoting you again, the preferred form of political violence in the United States by far is presidential assassination. The country has seen one civil war and no coup d'etat, but assassination? The odds of being assassinated while president is one in 11, and a further 17 presidents survived attempts on their lives. That's a lot. And uh, the quote, yeah, that is a lot. Yeah, it's a lot, especially when you compare it, like only one British prime minister has been assassinated in 1812. There's only been two, two assassination attempts in Canadian history, and there's one in Australia. So, yeah, I mean, presidential assassination is absolutely a, a part of the political process in the United States in a way that it isn't even comparable to, like, South American countries, which go back and forth between democracy and autocracy. It's a thing. And it has to do with the specific role of the president, where he is kind of a king, a king for a brief period, where he, he embodies the whole country. And he embodies the values of the whole country. In Canada, a prime minister is just a civil servant, right? He's not, he doesn't represent who we are. He's just some guy who who is running the country. But an American president is an icon. An icon is much more murderable than a, or or worth murdering than than a civil servant. And I think that's the explanation I came to, too. But yeah, presidential assassination is very common in the United States. It's the most dangerous job in the United States. Like, it's by far. Like, combat deaths are way less than 1 in 11. I mean, I think combat deaths are 0.4% or something. Like, it's, like it's, it's much more likely to be killed being president than having any other job. Something to consider if you're going to run. Yeah, yes, that's, that's true. I'm not sure what it says about me 
that I really didn't think of it that way. Um, it was very helpful to have you pointed out, Stephen Marsh. You go into some detail about what makes a person go from you know, screaming at a online screen to actually pulling a trigger? Well, that's the way we look at it these days. Of course, that's not the way it happened before. Do you want to say something about that evolution? The experts that I talked to who were, who were fascinating, actually, to talk to, they have a lot of psychological metrics for analyzing who actually becomes a terrorist because there's lots of anger in the United States, right? Like, there's no lack of political anger anywhere. So what makes someone go from just being politically angry to actually getting a gun? And that's the new field of stochastic terrorism, the study of stochastic terrorism, which is just how people go. The Secret Service agents I talked to were like, we used to have a fairly reasonable grasp of where the threats were coming from. But now, really, it's Somebody goes like it can even happen in days where somebody goes from being quite normal to being violently evil and murdering a political leader. Just a snap of the fingers, really. That's a whole a whole field of the study of danger that's really hard to know because you know the, the anger is out there. There's so much anger, but how does it actually turn into violence? That's a sort of very important question for the United States right now. I enjoyed the insights that you offered about how the Secret Service works. And actually, given the recent newspaper articles about some of them anyway being susceptible to people just showing up and offering them gifts and things, well, anyway, we won't go into that. But among the other things, there are three stages and clusters to transition to assassination, according to how do you say the the man's name? Spaji, spy. I, I think it's spy, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, that's these, how I pronounce. It okay, good. It's S P A double A J, right? So you have to have the means and opportunity, right? So, and the cost of action has to be lower than the higher cost of inaction. Talk about that element, would you please? What it's really about is creating a sense of urgency in the killer's mind. So, like, it's not necessarily that anything political has changed. It's, it, it could even be like someone on talk radio saying, if this person doesn't die, we're going to lose the country. And I don't know why I would say talk radio, because the governor of Kentucky said that if Hillary Clinton was elected president, there would need to be violent revolution. So there's no lack of people saying that if, if the opponents don't die, America itself will be lost. That's really what the, the, the threshold, it's the threshold of this needs to be done now or all will be lost. That's one of the major components that tends to, and these are generalizations, they certainly don't apply in every case, that tends to lead to political assassination. And you point out that uh, this creates two new icons, the martyred president and the heroic assassin. And you offer as examples recent heroes to half the country, Dylan Roof, who walked into the the Methodist uh, church in Atlanta and prayed Mm -hmm. with the people around the table and then shot and killed them. But also Kyle Rittenhouse, he's become a hero to about half the country. I wouldn't say Dylan Roof is a hero to half the country. Dylan Roof is a real extreme case. Although, also to be clear, he shot a state senator. I mean, people don't necessarily think of that because he murdered so many people, but he did actually shoot an elected official as well. So he's, he, that's definitely a con. Kyle Rittenhouse is a really interesting case because like when you're outside of the United States, like that is what an insurgent looks like. That's, I mean, that's an insurgent. That's a young man who's there to defend property and get, and gets violent. Like that's, that's what insurgents in South Africa look like. That's what they look like in Europe. That's what they look, that's what an insurgent in the Ukraine looks like. Right. So there's this strange thing in America where it's like, oh no, he's just a kid. It's like, well, that, I mean, you can, you can say that if you want, but that he has a specific political role and that political role is as a right-wing insurgent. And, and so his, his acquittal is hugely significant. 
and like hugely significant for the for the future of the country, as is the, the trials of the people of January 6th, which are going a different way. Well, talk about that a little more, please. These people are in prison in Washington, and every night before dinner, they sing the national anthem because they consider themselves political prisoners, right? And in a sense, they are. They have been arrested for their political views, and their political views are the destruction of the United States. They want the destruction of the United States. I understand there's going to be a legal challenge against Marjorie Taylor Greene because it is actually part of the Constitution that you can't run for office after you've promoted sedition. But these questions are becoming more and more practical. Like, they're not theoretical. You have people who are actively promoting sedition in very high levels of right-wing politics. You also have things like the Oath Keepers list, where 40,000 members of the Oath Keepers are in police departments and in low levels of government and in and state senators. And so you have this moment where people who actively want the destruction of the federal authority are achieving real power. And so th- then you become like in Canada, we sort of have this question because we have Quebec separatists who are members of government. Right. And we have to actually deal with the fact that people who don't want the country to exist are in power and have responsibilities that go with that. They have to even say a a loyalty oath to the queen, swear loyalty to the queen. And they come up with all kinds of ways of doing this, crossing their fingers when they do it and saying it low and saying and also to the king of France and mocking it in various ways. But, you know, it, it is a it is a thing where you have people who are act and, you know, given America's history where it did have serious amounts of sedition in the revolutionary period and then the civil war. So there's this real, very strict anti-seditionist tenor to the constitution and to the bill of rights and to the legal system. It's going to be very complicated to work out how you deal with the politics of people who you also have to arrest for wanting to destroy the country. And that's something that has haunted a lot of governments like Ireland and even European governments like Germany and Italy and, and France during the 70s. It's going to be very rocky. And, and what happens when a president comes along and pardons all those people is also going to be very rocky. Just to update your comment about Representative Green, Marjorie Taylor Green, just Monday, April 18th, Federal District Judge Amy Totenberg ruled that Ms. Green's request for a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining order has been denied. So the the case of the group of Georgia voters can move forward with legal efforts seeking to disqualify her from running for re-election to Congress. On the other hand, my understanding is that uh, so that uh, Judge Totenberg was appointed by President Obama a Trump appointee in, I guess it's North Carolina, has ruled against similar groups in the case of Madison Cawthorn. So who appoints judges seems to have a tremendous impact on how these things get decided. But we need to move on. You do address in your fifth dispatch, Stephen Marsh, the end of the republic, civilized separation, question mark. Uh, share with our listeners some of the scenarios that you consider. Secession is a, a broadening movement in the United States. It's not as serious as it is in other countries. Like it, the, the Texas secessionists, who are the most serious, the most prepared, they are not at the same level as, say, the Scottish National Party or or certainly Quebec separatists in my own country who are elected and prepared and know what a future country would look like and also know that to, to actually have a separate country, you need to negotiate with the UN and you need to have large international community uh, behind the separation, as well as you need to have agreement with the home state to separate. There are these broadening secessionist movements, but it's unclear how, how serious they are. That said, I think secession is far from the worst case scenario here. Like I think in a condition where political violence is rising, the question becomes, how do you find a way out of these political binds without violence? And I think breaking up into separate states is is a very reasonable way to do that. You know, there are three times as many countries in the world today as there were in 1945. Countries break up all the time. And for sometimes lesser reasons than the reasons that would break up the United States now. 
I actually think the new abortion laws are going to have a huge effect on this conversation. I think the Supreme Court ruling this summer is going to lead either way to real discussions of the possibility of separation. And that I think is something that should not be dismissed. Like, I think that's an option that should be discussed, even though it's totally unconstitutional. It's not within the bounds of the U.S. Constitution to do that. And it's also extremely difficult to do on an international level. Not everyone agrees that it's unconstitutional. And Daniel Miller, I think, is the one who said, um, since we're discussing it, not everyone agrees about that, right? And Richard Kreitner, whom we referenced before, who wrote a book on secession, he pointed out that one of the legal arguments of it is that the Constitution itself was not legally created because the laws that governed at the time were the Articles of Confederation, and they required a higher majority to leave the Confederation than the Constitution got, and therefore that document's illegal. Well, that's, anyway, that's, we'll leave that for others to discuss. But anyway, the point is there are people who disagree that seceding is unconstitutional, regardless of the fact that so many people died in the Civil War saying that it is. So what are some of the scenarios that you considered or are being considered in ter- you've mentioned California and Texas and or the West Coast, Washington, Oregon and California as one possible and and Texas and it's notable that their economies and landmass and populations make them among the biggest potential countries in the world and that they function as donor states to the current United States of America. So should they leave, they would likely do fine. But what are some of the other ways this part of the continent could be divided? The scenario I imagined was the Northeast, essentially Yankeedom, uh, the South and Midwest as one country, and then Texas and California, well, actually Cascadia uh, as a separate country. Each of those countries would be huge, right? Like the Northeast alone has an economy the size of Japan's, and California would have the world's highest GDP ratio per person by far, by I think $20,000 per person. So uh, California would be an incredibly rich country. Texas, too, very, very wealthy, very diverse economy, very diverse population. It is the global economy, really, Texas and California. So I think they could succeed. On the other hand, a lot of American success has to do with the American dollar and being the world's superpower and having the world's largest navy and being, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room in every international conversation that there is. That would be over. Like American power and influence would obviously be gone in the, in the way that it currently exists in the world. And I'm not sure that would be entirely a bad thing. It might not be entirely a good thing either. But I think the point really is that these countries have very different political visions of what they want to be. And the United States as a political entity is preventing them from fulfilling those destinies. I mean, the fact that there's no gun control in Boston and New York is kind of ridiculous. That's what they want. And they, they also want health care. They want to be like European countries more. They want that they want that kind of state that kind of state, whereas the South just doesn't. And so what you end up having is what you have now, which is both sides feel occupied. Both sides feel oppressed. And I, I just don't think that can stand. You know, I just don't think that, that can last. And you note that there's already a sorting going on. People from California are moving to Texas for political reasons, for reasons of Texas seems to have the values that they prefer, Some among them, some of the things you just mentioned. So that sorting is already going on, and so perhaps that's the way things can Manage, But I can't help noting, and you do address this in your book, the impact of climate change. There are parts of both California and Texas that are really going to become untenable due to climate change. So briefly talk about the impact of climate change on all this. It's what the CIA calls a threat multiplier. So it's the sort of thing that creates a lot of – it's dangerous in itself, but it also – 
adds to it's a huge stressor like one of the best models that i found estimated that there will be 13 million climate change refugees in the united states by 2050 so that's a huge that's just a huge number of displaced people to have to deal with when your political system already is in mid-collapse and not really capable of dealing with even ordinary political problems right so climate change really opens up a whole a whole series of problems that are are very hard to address and require a lot. Like, I mean, the big risk factor is really New York, which has been left completely exposed to a level of irresponsibility that I find shocking. I mean, the people of Tokyo do not just leave Tokyo to be vulnerable to earthquakes. They take steps, right? Like they, they make, they make plans. People of Shanghai don't, they, they, they take plans, but New York has been sort of abandoned to its future. And I find that just shocking. I mean, of all the things in the book that I find shocking, that's the one I find most horrifying because to have a, a jewel in your possession like New York and not protect it seems uh, so crazy as to be almost obscene. But yeah, like it, the areas that are becoming uninhabitable, particularly in places like Phoenix and Florida, which are like right on the top of the list. But you know, you also see this in, in the Paradise Fire and in California and other places, what is happening is that the government essentially has to force insurers to insure people's homes where they really shouldn't be insured. And that also is an unsustainable system that is going to lead to huge portions of real estate essentially being devalued because they will be uninsurable. And that's an economic crisis that that leads from the environmental crisis. And it's a a complex cascading system where bad things lead to other bad things and feed into each other. And it occurs to me that among the issues involved in if the United States were to break up into regions, vast numbers of acres in the Intermountain West, for example, are owned by the federal government, and that would have to be dealt with. Oh, boy, that would be something else. I mean, that's all... Well, that's a whole other field of like that's those are the sagebrush rebels where there's a whole other mountain of resistance right like that's a whole other subgroup of resistance to federal authority that we didn't even talk about but yeah that's very real absolutely when you first wrote the battle of the bridge i thought you were going to be talking about the bundys and the sagebrush right. Because that actually did happen, and the government backed down. Yeah, I mean the, that was a slightly different case because it was not; it wasn't a large collection of fascist groups. It was really one group. I do talk about them in, I think, in that chapter, right? Because I talked to one of their sisters. Right. No, you talk. Yes, sisters. you talk yeah. about the you talk about the Mueller Wildlife Refuge, which came later. They weren't stopped at the bridge. The government retreated right. rather than the poor individual Forest Service people or whoever they were, rather than getting shot yeah. to death, they they backed yeah. off. And, and then that led to the Malheur Refuge yeah, events. The, and, the, the military was never called in in that case. That was still a police action. Right. Which is, was so screw-ups in police actions are, are different than screw-ups in military actions. And of course, there's a whole, the legal framework is completely different. You know, I needed to imagine a group where the Department of Justice would just throw up their hands. Like they did, you know, that's what happened in Ottawa here, where essentially the police said, we're, we're not in the business of quelling rebellions. Like, you need to find someone else to do this. I see. But nonetheless, in the different trials of the Bundy members, they were acquitted mm. every time. So Yeah. Well, that, I mean, Rittenhouse was acquitted. Like, yep. you know, I mean, like, uh, and, and you know, you're right. The judicial system is highly politicized at this point. Highly politicized. Stephen Marsh, there's so much more in your book, The Next Civil War Dispatches from the American Future, that I couldn't get to. Please take one thing that we couldn't get to and share it with our listeners. The final chapter is about hope in America. And I mean, I think... There are reasons for hope, but there, the hope that has to be abandoned is that everything's going to work out. Like the, the trends are really going one way here. And what is required is confrontation with the reality to find political solutions. And I think those political solutions at this point are the largest that are available. Like you need a new constitutional convention or you need some kind of new series of states, like like you need active secession. So what I hope people would take away from this is like the time has come for these big questions about what America can be, what it is, what it should be, and how to actually make a meaningful politics, because America is the country of self-reinvention. 
And it is the country of political reinvention. And if anyone can do it, it's America. But it needs doing. It's not going to happen on its own. Stephen Marsh, thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio and for writing this book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. We very much appreciate your perspective. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you had me. You have just heard a conversation with Stephen Marsh about his latest book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, published by Avid Reader Press. In the final chapter, A Note on American Hope, he writes, quote, None of the crises described in this book are beyond the capacity of Americans to solve. It would be entirely possible for the United States to implement a modern electoral system, to restore the legitimacy of the courts, to reform its police forces, to root out domestic terrorism, to alter its tax code, to address inequality to prepare its cities and agriculture for the effects of climate change, to regulate and to control the mechanisms of violence. There is one hope, however, that must be rejected outright, the hope that everything will work out by itself, that America will bumble along into better times. It won't. Americans have believed their country is an exception, a necessary nation. If history has shown us anything, it's that the world doesn't have any necessary nations. End of that quote. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. And you can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. And let us end with the words of the first President of the United States, George Washington, in his farewell address, September 19, 1796. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.